Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the DNS podcast. It is my absolute honor today to introduce our guest host, Stephanie Doback. Stephanie is a certified nutrition support clinician and level three clinical dietitian at Jefferson Weinberg ALS Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She is a widely known advisory board member, author, researcher, preceptor, and lecturer, currently working on research related to advanced care planning in patients with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS. She is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2019 Outstanding Abstract Award at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo. In her quote-unquote spare time, she also serves as the DNS DPG Executive Coordinator and has held numerous volunteer positions with our group, including Secretary and the Director of Marketing and Communications. With that, I'll pass the mic to Steph, who will introduce today's topic and guest. Thanks, Christina. I'm super excited to be here, and I'm honored to be introducing Dr. Zachary Clock. Zach is a board-certified family physician who is completing a fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Zach enjoys helping patients and families navigate serious illness and providing care at the end of life. He has published research into end-of-life care and imprisoned patients, and more recently is studying advanced care planning in patients with ALS. Welcome, Zach, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Steph. It's great to be with all of you and all of your listeners. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So I wanted to get started with hearing a little bit about you. Tell us about yourself and what got you interested in palliative care. Yeah, well, as you mentioned in the introduction, my name's Zach. I am a uh, family physician who's completing my hospice and palliative medicine fellowship at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Palliative care physicians can really be trained in all sorts of different fields and have completed a residency in, in pretty much any field, though many of them are trained in either internal medicine or family medicine prior to completing their fellowship. Uh, I did my family medicine training here at Jefferson, um, where I also served as chief resident for a year. And throughout my residency and career, I've been interested in all sorts of different things, particularly community medicine, um, and have also done research, as you said, into end-of-life care and imprisoned populations, and most recently, advanced care planning in patients with ALS. In terms of my interest in palliative medicine, I, I really started to become interested in it uh, during medical school, during my clinical years, which are your third and fourth years. And I really found myself often frustrated by the fragmented communication and really some of the challenges and difficulties that the healthcare system has in communicating with patients and families. And I was always really impressed when we would consult the palliative care team and watch them to have these goals of care conversations and to really talk with families about their health and their disease and their prognosis and their management options. You know, throughout my journey in medicine, before medical school, during medical school, during residency, I've always really been drawn to the humanistic aspect of medicine. 
I really enjoyed talking with my patients, getting to know about them and their lives, caring for patients with all sorts of different illnesses throughout their disease and life trajectory, and really thinking about all of the things aside from medicine and aside from what we do in the hospital or in the exam room that can help to affect patients' care, and really putting all of this together to come up with an individualized care plan that really helps patients and is patient-centered and patient-focused. And throughout residency, I really just continued to be drawn to discussing values and goals of care and options and choices with my, with my patients, whether it was you know, talking with a patient with diabetes about what might be the best medication for them based on side effects or how often they have to take it or how it's given, or more serious conversations about something like as their kidneys continued to fail if they want dialysis or as their interstitial lung disease continues to worsen if they would want tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation. And so I continued to really be drawn to these conversations and it felt like a natural fit to continue my training and do a, a hospice and palliative medicine fellowship where I can really help patients and families center the care around their life and their values. And so here I am today finishing up my fellowship. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm completely biased because I love palliative care and end of life care and, and to really just focus on the overall patient and take it holistically. I think sometimes it's so easy for us to see just another patient on the ventilator or another TPN request, but knowing that that's somebody's mother or son really puts into perspective. So thank you. All right. This next question, I will humbly admit, I didn't know the answer to until about five years ago. Can you tell us the difference between palliative care and hospice? Because for so long, I thought they were synonymous. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I talk about every single day uh, in my work, whether it be with patients or family members or other healthcare providers. I think there's a lot of people who kind of assume that they are the same. And when I introduce myself to family members as the palliative care specialist, they often kind of get a little bit anxious and think, oh no, the hospice doctor's here. And while there are a lot of similarities in philosophy of care, there are you know, certainly some, some distinct differences. Uh, simply put, hospice is a subset of palliative care that's really focused on caring for patients at the very end of their life. And it's also an insurance benefit, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. But really, both of them focus on quality of life and providing patients with as much comfort as possible. I always tell my patients when I'm meeting them for the first time that palliative care is for patients with serious or complex medical illness. We see patients both in the hospital and sometimes in the outpatient office. And outpatient palliative care is certainly a growing field of medicine and there's more and more outpatient palliative care that's happening, though a lot of the work that we do right now is, is in the hospital. And our role is really to be an added layer of support for patients and families with serious illness for whatever that means, whether it be symptom management, uh, helping with advanced care planning, helping with goals of care conversations, helping with you know social work needs that they may have, like getting to and from their appointments or filling out paperwork. We can really be support in whatever way a patient and a family needs. You know, medically, one of the big things that we do is helping to manage patient symptoms. Um, pain in particular is something that we do a lot of, uh, but we can also help to manage things like shortness of breath, nausea, constipation, just to name a few. 
And in the hospital, we get involved a lot to help families with goals of care conversations and to help facilitate complex medical decision-making, whether those be you know, decisions around management like chemotherapy, whether they be decisions about interventions like a surgical intervention, an organ transplant, an advanced heart failure device, um, or helping them with disposition after the hospital. What makes sense for a patient? Does it make sense with their goals and their hopes to go to a rehab for functional gains or to a nursing home or with some sort of hospice care? You know, in a patient who has cancer, for example, which is a lot of the patients that we see, we may explore the risks and benefits of chemotherapy. You know, what can a patient realistically expect if they start this chemotherapy? Is it chemotherapy with palliative intent, meaning to help alleviate symptoms, but not to cure the illness? What sort of treatment effects may they expect? What sort of side effects may they expect? How will it affect their life? Are they coming to an infusion center every day or going to radiation every day for six weeks? And how does this really fit into the context of a patient's life and, and what they may or may not want? You know, in a patient with a, a, an acute stroke, for example, or progressive neurogenitive disease like ALS, we may explore the benefits of a feeding tube. How will it affect their overall condition? Is it something a patient would want? Is there benefit to it? What is the risk to it? So that's a lot of what we do in the hospital. In the outpatient setting, we do the same thing, though maybe the decisions and the medical management is not as acute as a hospitalized patient, but we help to manage symptoms and we help to facilitate complex decision-making over the course of a patient's illness and as their condition progresses or declines. The other big thing that we do in, in both settings um, is, is helping with advanced care planning. Um, which is really kind of naming and documenting a decision maker. You know, if you were unable to make medical decisions for yourself, who would you want to make them for you? Which is, you know, sometimes and really colloquial called a healthcare proxy or a power of attorney. And also thinking about what sorts of things a patient may or may not want as their disease progresses or if they were to become seriously ill. Things like, would they want mechanical ventilation? Would they want CPR and resusc cardiac resuscitation, whether they would want a feeding tube or hemodialysis. And we really help patients and families to think through these different possibilities and to document them in something called an advanced directive or a living will is often how patients will refer to it. And I think people think that, you know, palliative care is kind of giving up or standing alone. And I think it's important to remember that palliative care can and does occur alongside disease-directed or targeted therapy. I see many patients in the hospital and the outpatient center and our cancer center, for example, who are undergoing chemotherapy or radiation, and I'm there to help them to navigate the process, to be there if things don't go as planned, and to develop any symptoms that come along with that. Hospice, I often say, is really a subset of palliative care. So it, it does all of those same things. We do advanced care planning. We do symptom management. We facilitate decision-making that may need to happen. But it's really reserved for patients with a terminal diagnosis at the end of their life. Uh, patients, in order to enroll in hospice, need to have an estimated prognosis of less than six months if their disease continues to progress as we would expect. You know, some patients 
outlive that six months and can be re-enrolled in another hospice benefit period, so long as their disease would still, we would still expect it to, um, to end their life within six months. And hospice really focuses on quality of life over interventions and quantity of life, which includes hospitalization. Um, you know, the hospice agency really becomes the person who cares for patients. If anything were to happen, they become the patient's 911, so to speak. And it's provided by an interdisciplinary team. You know, there's physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains, art and music therapists, dietitians. So it's really a big team of people helping to focus on patients' quality of life during, during their final, you know, days to weeks to months. One of the things I hear a lot from patients and families that they, is that they think hospice is a place. They think you know, that someone goes to hospice and there are hospice places called inpatient hospice units, um, but most hospice care is actually delivered in the home setting. An inpatient hospice unit is, is really reserved for patients who have uncontrolled symptoms or uncontrolled nursing needs and who need to be there and have a daily physician evaluation. But otherwise, most patients are actually cared for at home, mostly by their family with the support of hospice team, you know, the health aid, the nurse, all the other people that we talked about. And it really supports them and their independence and their time at home and the things that are important to them. So really they're, they're very similar and the overall philosophy of care is similar between the two. Um, but palliative care is, is not necessarily mean a patient is, is imminently dying or is terminally ill in the next days to weeks or is foregoing any sort of disease-directed, targeted, curative intent therapy. Thank you. Yeah, because I've seen palliative care follow COPD patients or CHF patients or these cancers that have a good prognosis like breast cancer or some head and neck cancers. And I had always thought, oh, no, palliative care is on board. Like, what's this leading to? But not really that it doesn't necessarily need to be a terminal disease for palliative care to follow. So as a dietitian, I have certain information I gather prior to entering a patient's room. So reviewing their chart, I'm looking at primary diagnosis, medical surgery history, weight history, med labs, that sort of thing. What types of information do you consider prior to your meetings with patients and families? Yeah, so we probably look at a lot of very similar information. Um, you know, as a, as a physician, I, I will do a deep dive into a patient's chart before I meet them, just like, you know, any sort of patient that I'm seeing. <clears throat> I pay attention to things like medical diagnoses, particularly if there's some sort of a, a terminal diagnosis like cancer, COPD, CHF, neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases, some of the things that you had mentioned. I look at their medical history, their surgical history. I look at their medication list, paying particular attention to medicines that may be symptom focused to get an idea of what symptoms a patient may have, and also pay attention to potential side effects of patients that met, of medicines that patients are on. Um, I look at recent vital signs. I look at recent labs, progress notes, histories, and physicals. Uh, I really like to pay attention to the number of um, emergency department visits or hospitalizations that have occurred in the past few months, because that can really give you an idea of kind of where a patient may be at at their, at their disease trajectory and may also give you an idea of, of what's going on at home and, and if, if 
if families can't care for patients at home, that may be one of the reasons for recurrent ED visits or hospitalizations. Uh, I'm sure you pay a lot of attention to the weight, um, and I really like to look at the weight too. I think weight gives you a, a really good idea of where a patient's at with their nutritional status, which is you know, an overall marker for where they're at in their disease. Um, in patients with you know, chronic diseases like advanced COPD or heart failure, we know that as those organs have to work more and as those organs get sicker, that it takes up a lot of the patient's calories and can result in things like cardiac cachexia, which is, you know, cachexia that's related to a patient with um, advanced heart disease or in cancer patients, we know that as their cancer progresses, that their weight will decline. Um, we also know that in some cancers that may have curative intent, things like head and neck cancers, that weight changes can really give you an idea of how well a patient is doing with their treatment and what their prognosis may be. So, so I also pay a lot of attention to weight. Um, I like to read notes from all sorts of different team members. Um, I think that, you know, each, each person who's caring for a patient has a unique education and skill set and things that they're looking for. And so each note gives me a different piece of the picture of who a patient is and how things are going. You know, a physician note will give me an idea of kind of the overall plan, maybe an idea of, of where the prognosis might be. Um, the nurse's note will give me an idea of the day-to-day -day care needs that a patient has and kind of at the bedside, how are they doing more minute to minute. A physical or occupational therapist note will tell me about their functional status, their rehab potential. Um, a dietitian or a speech language pathologist note will give me an idea of their functional status, of their kind of swallow ability, their ability to recover swallow function, especially if we're thinking about uh, nutrition and whether artificial nutrition is something that may be needed. And case manager or social worker notes will give me an idea of the family dynamic, what's going on at home, how have patients been doing at home, are there, you know, complicated dynamics or things that I should be paying attention to. And then I always find it really helpful to call the referring physician, especially in the hospital before I see any patient, I call the person who is putting in the consult and I ask them, you know, what's going on with this patient? What are you realistically expecting? And what are you hoping that I can do or bring to the table from my visit. So really I kind of use all these things in the chart to get a, a big picture view of who a patient is before meeting with them um, so that I, I can kind of have an idea of, of what the future may bring and what sorts of challenges we may have going into my patient visits. Great. So you've reviewed the chart, you've gained all that information, you've possibly talked to the referring physician. Walk us through a typical conversation with a patient or family. Yeah, so I think one of the most important parts of my conversations, especially an initial patient visit, and something I'm really aware of is that patients and families should really be doing most of the talking and I should be doing most of the listening. You know, especially in the beginning of a visit, I'm really trying to get an idea of who a patient is, what their values are, what's important to them, what they're hoping for from their care. And so the more I ask open-ended questions and can listen to patients and families, the more I can really gather the information that I'm looking for to help plan goals of care and to help facilitate decision-making. You know, sometimes this is easier said than done, 
Uh, but I generally try and use a lot of open-ended questions to get patients really talking. The other thing that you may note if you ever kind of listen in on a palliative care provider's conversation is that there may be longer periods of silence than you may be used to or may be comfortable with. And this is something that I really use because the more that we sit in silence, the more opportunity it gives patients to think and to speak and to really tell us what's going on. So if you ever were to sit in on a conversation with me, you may sometimes get a little bit uncomfortable by how much silence there is, but it provides us a really great opportunity to let patients and families talk and tell us what's going on. So in terms of kind of my visit itself, I almost always will start by asking a question like, what have you heard from the doctor or what have the doctors been telling you? You know, I've reviewed the chart. I know what's going on. I have an idea of, of kind of what to expect based on my medical experience. But asking such a question allows a patient to tell you in their own words what's going on and how they're feeling about their situation. You know, a conversation, I may see a patient who to me looks like they're nearing the end of their life from an advanced cancer, let's say. And I can see from the chart that the physicians and the oncologists are talking about, you know, there's no more medical options, no more chemotherapy, no more radiation that's possible. And if I ask a patient or a family, what have you heard or what are the doctors telling you? A patient may tell me, well, doc, the cancer doctors say there's nothing more they can do and I wanna go home and be with my family. And that's gonna be a very different conversation than a patient who tells me, the doctors tell me if I get stronger that I might be able to get more chemotherapy and have a few more years left. And so really asking such an open-ended question can, can set the stage and allow me to navigate the conversation and to really hear where a patient's at, what they have heard, what their understanding of their disease is, and, and can really help to guide my conversation. You know, as a, as a physician who focuses on symptom management in particular, I'll take a, a symptom history. I'll ask them things like pain, shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, constipation, and kind of based on their answers, take an appropriate pain history or, or symptom history. The next kind of big piece of thing I like to get after assessing symptoms and their understanding of their disease is what's going on at home. Um, and again, I use an open-ended question to, to ask this. I'll usually say, you know, tell me about home or how have things been going at home? And you get all sorts of different answers, but I'm really, you know, hoping to get information about who lives at home with them and who's their greater support system. How independent are they in their activities of daily living or their instrumental activities of daily living? What sort of assistance might they need at home and what sort of assistance might their family or support system be able to provide? And what might we need to help them to figure out if they were to go home in their current situation? After I do that, I'll usually do kind of an advanced care planning conversation. Um, again, asking in somewhat of an open way, asking, you know, if you, the phrase I usually use is, have you ever thought about if you were to get sicker or to be in a situation where you couldn't speak for yourself, have you thought about who you would want to speak for you or what you would want them to say? And sometimes we have patients who have thought about it, who have a written down advanced directive or living will, and they tell us that. And, you know, the phrase I'll use after that is, tell me about what it says. Um, other patients have really never thought about it. And I think 
starting to open that dialogue and asking them to think about it is really the first step. Um, I'll usually try and nail down some sort of a decision maker because I think that that becomes one of the most important pieces if a patient is to acutely worsen is trying to figure out who they would want to make decisions for them. And then we can kind of navigate the actual decision making process with them. So that's kind of my basic framework is using open ended questions to assess a patient's understanding of their disease their hopes and values, their current symptoms, their home situation, and what sort of thought they've put into advanced care planning before. And that's great. I've heard palliative care medicine be described as the art of listening. And I feel like that's what you perfectly described. And even encouraging the moments of silence, I feel our culture in particular likes to fill those gaps. They feel awkward, like you said, they want to say, um, or maybe repeat what they said, um, but just letting the silence be so that people can work their way through it. Good. So can you describe a particularly difficult patient family scenario you've experienced? I'm really excited to hear <laughs> this one. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I, you know, we see so many different cases and situations every single week that I feel like every week, if not every day, I have, you know, some complicated or difficult situation that I'm thinking about and reflecting on and, and trying to think about the best way to communicate or, or approach these situations. You know, I think when I, when I talk to people both in medicine and not in medicine about what I do, I think everyone thinks that the, the hard part or the difficult situations is, would be providing end of life care and how difficult or sad that may be, but I actually find that to be one of the most beautiful and meaningful parts of my job is, you know, helping patients and families to come together to understand their disease, to really enjoy what time they have left and to help them transition comfortably is, is actually one of my favorite parts of my job. Um, you know, I think the, the probably the most difficult patient situation that I encounter all too often is really around advanced care planning um, and seeing patients who are unable to speak for themselves and make medical decisions, whether that be because of a profound delirium, whether that because they're intubated in the ICU, whether they have severe neurologic damage after a stroke, for example, and whose family is really struggling to make decisions on a patient's behalf. Um, you know, we, I see all too often family members who, you know, the patient had never done any sort of advanced care planning, had never written down what they may want, had never, more importantly, talked with their family about what's important to them if they would want, you know, things like a ventilator, a feeding tube, hemodialysis. And sometimes patients really struggle to figure out, you know, what would mom or dad or my brother or sister want and what's most important to them in their life. And sometimes, you know, different family members will have different opinions and it can make for really challenging conversations and, and decision-making. And I think, you know, that is one of the hardest things um, that I deal with all too often is really patients who haven't given their family an indication of, of what they may want. And it, it becomes challenging and really hard and sometimes even crippling for, for families to make big decisions around, you know, placing a trach or a peg or initiating hemodialysis. And so I really, that's one of the reasons I, I so frequently encourage my patients and their families when they are in a state of health to talk about these things um, and to not kind of put it off. 
and when I talk with families, sometimes it it it's hard for them and, and as a culture and society, it's hard for us to talk about this. But I often say to patients and families, one of the biggest gifts that you can give to your loved one is telling them what you may want. And when I'm talking with families who may, you know, know what their loved one may want, but it's it's still hard to make decisions, particularly if they may be comfort focused rather than aggressive focused. I tell families like your loved one gave you this gift of what they would want. And I think we should do our best to respect that and to respect them. So that's certainly kind of the overarching challenge that I, I see all too often. You know, I, I think in, in 2021, in the middle of COVID-19, I would be remiss not to not to mention the pandemic at least once and it it certainly has brought its own set of challenges related to you know patients on long-term ECMO and long-term mechanical ventilation and really the same questions around advanced care planning and and giving an indication to your family member what you may want so while it's not easy I encourage you know everyone listening today to maybe tonight talk with your family over dinner uh, about you know what you may want if you were to be suddenly severely ill and faced with really serious decisions about how to manage complex medical illness. I agree. We should all have these conversations. Um, it's a lovely, lighthearted dinner conversation, but it's very necessary. As you had mentioned, some of these conversations come down to PEG, so artificial nutrition, hydration, even if it's through an NG tube. And I think that sometimes we, particularly as dietitians, shy away from these conversations because we don't know what to say. And a lot of his dietitians are type A. So if you tell us what to do, not to do, we will do it. So are there any key phrases you use when having these difficult conversations or any phrases you recommend not using? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, I, these these conversations are hard for everyone. And, you know, even when I was a resident before I started doing this work every single day, they were hard. And I learned kind of throughout fellowship and throughout my experience that there's really kind of a framework that I often use when approaching these that can sometimes make it easier and, and kind of some key phrases. Um, <clears throat> the first is worry statements. I use worry statements all the time. Uh, I like worry statements because I think that they are both clinical as well as emotional. You know, they convey your clinical concern that, you know, what you are seeing worries you, but at the same time allows you to connect to a patient or a family member on an emotional level. You know, some examples of worry statements that I may use, I may tell, tell a patient or a family member, I am worried that your cancer is progressing or I am worried that your breathing shows me that there's less time than we would all hope for, or I'm worried that there's nothing we can do to take your cancer away. And after the worry statements, I will allow for a period of silence um, to kind of allow the family and the patient to have an emotional response to what I'm saying and to give them a chance to process and to kind of come back to me and say really what they're feeling. You know, yesterday, for example, I was I was taking care of a, a patient with metastatic lung cancer in the hospital, and we were hoping to transition her to an inpatient hospice unit. And, you know, she really acutely declined throughout the day. And when I saw her, you know, the family was very upset. They really wanted to get her to an inpatient hospice unit. And I used a worry statement with them. And I said, you know, I'm 
worried that your mom has less time than we all want. And I'm worried that if we transport her to a hospice that she will die in transport. And I think those statements can be really powerful. And I, I encourage you guys all to use them as you're, as you're practicing this language. The other statements I use a lot um, are hope or wish statements, um, particularly to kind of reflect back what a patient is telling me. You know, I may be having a conversation with, you know, someone with advanced dementia around a feeding tube, for example, and the family they tell me, well, I just want them to eat more. And I can reflect that back and say, you know, I hope he starts eating more or I wish he would start eating more. And this can help you to kind of be on the same field as the family and align yourself with them. Uh, wish statements I'll usually use if I feel maybe a family is saying something that's a little bit more unrealistic. You know, I will say things like, I wish I could take the cancer away or I wish I had a pill to make this all better really again, to show that you're aligning with them, but that maybe what they're thinking or what they're hoping for is, is maybe a little bit more unrealistic than, than we think based on our medical experience. And sometimes I'll kind of pair these, these statements together. You know, I might say, you know, I hope that he starts eating, but I'm worried that he will not. Or I hope that your kidneys improve, but I'm worried that if they don't, you may need hemodialysis. And this can be a really nice way to kind of show your concern, but also align yourself with patients and families. Um, the other thing I think can be really helpful that I use a lot, uh, oftentimes in these conversations, patients and families may have a really emotional response that's hard for us to, to respond to and to know what to say back, particularly with a lot of anger or frustration. And in these situations, I, I I name the emotion. So if a patient or a family member gets really upset, I'll say to them, you know, I can see that this is really difficult for you, or it sounds like you are worried about, or it seems like you are feeling angry. And I think acknowledging it shows them that you're listening and you're paying attention. And again, providing silence after you name the emotion allows them for a chance to respond and say, you know, yes, I'm feeling angry because you know, I want her to be at home. And that can give you a lot of information to help as you're navigating values and goals and making a plan for patients. The other thing I will say is I know it's really hard for healthcare providers to use the D word, die, death, dying, you know, in any form. And I think that if a patient is dying or that is your concern, that you, it really does justice to the patient and to the family to use that word, no matter how difficult it can be. Or if you're talking about different situations, using that word, if that's gonna be the outcome. I was seeing a patient and his wife yesterday who's having renal failure and needs to be started on hemodialysis. And they're really concerned about how that'll affect the quality of his life and whether or not he wants to undergo hemodialysis. And I told them, you know, you have a choice to not start hemodialysis. If that is our plan, then you will die in the coming days to weeks. And I think that was shocking to him. And he told me, so you're giving me a death sentence. And I reflected back that it, I'm not giving you a death sentence. You have a choice. And I want to make sure that you know what your choices entail. And so I think using the, the death word, it can be very challenging, especially to say to a patient, uh, but it, it, it's really important that we use it when it's necessary so that we're not 
kind of hiding behind euphemisms around death when that is really going to be the outcome. In terms of things that I, I don't say, I don't think there's any really blanket statements around things that I, I would say to stay away from, though, you know, I personally have a, a few things that I don't like to say. And I, I really think the important part is, is focusing on patient-friendly language as much as possible. One of the big things I don't like to say to patients and families is using the word understand um, in kind of two different contexts. When I'm assessing their, their knowledge or their perception of their disease illness, I don't like to ask them, what do you understand? That's why I kind of use the, what have you heard? Because I think especially in you know, communities with lower uh, healthcare literacy or, or um, lower levels of trust in the healthcare system, that this can really kind of pit you know, physicians and healthcare professionals against patients and families and kind of put the onus back on them that they're not understanding what's going on when it's oftentimes that we're not communicating what's going on. So I really don't like to ask patients or families what they understand about their illness. I also don't like to use I understand statements when responding to emotion or providing comfort to patients. You know, they are going through oftentimes something that I have experienced with many patients and may, you know, come in with my own personal experiences with, but I cannot understand, you know, exactly what they're going through or exactly what their family's going through. And so I don't like to tell a patient, like, I understand this is so hard. I prefer to use, I don't understand, or I can't even imagine. And I think it shows a patient that, you know, you're sympathetic and you understand that this is a really hard situation, but that you can't totally understand it. And oftentimes I find when I use, I understand statements that patients and families will very quickly tell me that I don't understand and they're right. So I like to use statements like, I can't even imagine how difficult this must be for you and your family. I can't even imagine what you're going through. Um, so those are kind of some tips that I, I have that are hopefully helpful for you guys and some phrases that you can incorporate into your language. Thanks, Zach. And I will say from my personal experience, I used to what we call hedge, beat around the bush, kind of soften the blow. But I found that most patients prefer you to be more direct so they can kind of plan appropriately and make decisions based off the, the direct knowledge of what you're giving them. In your view, what is the role of the dietitian in these end of life discussions and how can dietitians become more involved in these discussions? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, to be honest, I really have not, you know, my kind of collaboration and interaction with dietitians has been very limited in end of life conversations. Um, and I, most of my interaction with them is in either critically ill patients in the ICU who are getting artificial nutrition. Uh, I do some work at a long-term care facility in a nursing home and will work with dietitians kind of on a more outpatient chronic basis. Um, and in my outpatient palliative clinic, we also have a dietitian who works with us. So, you know, I've interfaced with dietitians in many ways, but my experience with them being involved in end of life conversations is actually, you know, more limited than I think I'd want it to be. Um, I think, you know, dietitians bring such a unique knowledge and set of understanding around nutrition and I think patients and families really understand that. And so I think in particular in patients 
who were having conversations regarding feeding and peg tubes that utilizing dietitians can be such a great benefit and can really add to the patient's care and to the overall kind of discussion and goals of care planning. And I really think of this in kind of two main ways. The first is conversations before a PEG tube is placed, whether that be, you know, patients who have progressive neurodegenerative diseases, and we're talking about whether or not a PEG tube would help to enhance their nutrition and kind of prolong life or add to quality of life. We see it in patients in the ICU who are there for prolonged periods of time and who are getting worried about, you know, some of the complications of long-term Dobhoff or NG tube um, placement, and we're thinking about PEG tube. And I think dietitians can really provide an avenue to help us to communicate with families about the risks and benefits that may be related to, to PEG tube placement and to kind of artificial nutrition. And you know, outpatient or long-term, what does that look like? How does, you know, how does a peg tube work? How does someone get the appropriate uh, nutrition that they need? Things like that, I think, are questions that families often have for me that, you know, I don't really know the answer to. Like, as a physician, I help you make the decision about the peg tube placement, and then I don't really know what happens next. I don't really know, you know, what that bag or can of white thing hanging next to a patient really is. And so, I think involving dietitians earlier in those conversations can help to really help families to understand, you know, what is a peg tube or a feeding tube and what does it realistically look look like on a on a more long-term basis. The other kind of area around peg tubes that that we talk about a lot with patients that I, I think that dietitians could certainly help to partner with us on is patients who have a peg tube and who are talking about you know, a transition to hospice care or comfort care, and we're talking about stopping feeding. You know, I think food in our culture and our society is so important, and we are very attached to it. It is a sign of life. It is a sign of, of caring and love. It's how we oftentimes show love or express, you know, gratitude or emotions. And so I think for families, talking about stopping artificial nutrition can be really challenging. And I hear all the time, so you're going to starve the patient. And that's really not what it is. And you guys know that, and I know that, but it can be really hard for, for families in particular to wrap their heads around that. And so I think, you know, helping us to have those conversations when we're talking about, you know, stopping tube feeding and thinking about and talking with patients and families about, you know, some of the risks of tube feeding. And if we're really focused on comfort, you know, Tube feeding can contribute to things like bloating, increased risk of aspiration, you know, in patients who are really ill, it can cause edema and diffuse anasarca and things like that. And so I think, you know, involving dietitians as, you know, families look to you guys as the people who are experts in this because you are. And I think, you know, involving you and having you guys help us to have those conversations with families is really Kind of an avenue that I think we can do a lot better job at collaborating in. And agree. And from my past experience, again, I don't think I've ever actually been invited to one of these goals of care discussions. So if you're waiting for an invitation, it might never come. So I think just being proactive in going up to the physician and just saying, hey, I know that you have this family meeting planned. Um, can I be involved in it? And 
again, I feel like the physicians are usually grateful to have me there as the nutrition expert because they can't field all those questions, nor should they. Um, that's what we're there for as the nutrition expert. So, well, thank you. With that, we will conclude today's podcast. Zach, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Listeners, to learn more about palliative care, check out the different support line articles on this topic and stay tuned for a DNS YouTube episode on nutrition support at end of life coming out later this summer. Thanks for listening.